When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Kaya Alexander. I'm so excited to be here with you today in Entertainment Business Wisdom with my special guest, Richard Kahan. Did I say it right, Richard? You said it right. Yes. Wow. <laughs> he is a writer, producer. He's worked in film and TV for over 25 years. I saw it on your IMDb. You're an actor too. So I'm throwing that into your bio as well. Yep. Past projects include Sony television stars, multi-Emmy and Golden Globe nominated TV series Outlander, which we love. I'm a big fan of Outlander too. <laughs> and the internationally acclaimed film Lucky, which sold to Magnolia Pictures for a highly successful theatrical release in over 50 markets across the world. In addition to his work on Lucky and Outlander, Richard wrote and produced The Elevator, a series starring William Shatner, our buddy Bill Shatner, who just got back from space. Back from space, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and wrote and is set to produce Lifeline, a feature for Academy Award winning The Lag... Lag help help me with this one. The Lagerland Group. Lagerland Group, uh, which is Netflix, which did Netflix's Icarus, uh, which mm, amazing doc. If you haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it, you've got to. Um, and so then you've also produced Killing Eleanor, which I'm really excited to talk to you about today, which uh, was released through 1091 in October and is currently, you're also working on AMC and Spectrum's highly anticipated television series Beacon 23, starring Lena. Teddy from Game of Thrones. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to chat. Yeah. You're having this really fantastic moment in your career and you've come through working in the industry for 25 years. So as we get caught up to now, give me like an overview of the past 25 years. Let's start with how did you get into this business growing up in Canada? Wow. Summing up 25 years. It's intense. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I started I started as an actor, as you mentioned. I, you know, I grew up in the prairies of Canada. I grew up in Winnipeg. My family still all are. Um, and I was just a middle child, I think, starved for attention. 
um, and uh, the only boy. And uh, like so my Madonna, you and Madonna. Yes, that's right. Full <laughs> star for attention. What's she up to these days? Um, Not much. Whatever became of her. Um, so yeah, I you know I my parents got me into acting classes because um, I had a lot of energy and I wasn't really a sporty kid. Um, I was just like I just was like a natural theater dork. So uh, that worked out well. And then I just kept doing that and I did plays. And then uh, now Winnipeg has a really vibrant film and television business, but then it was just sort of beginning. So I started to do commercials and then a couple of independent films. And then now I'm speeding forward in my life. And then I was supposed to go to uh, acting school, Ryerson, um, outside of Toronto, uh, where Rachel McAdams went. We would have been in the same class. Oh my God, crazy. But she went and I deferred. And I moved to Vancouver and I ended up getting a TV series as an actor, um, a little show called Edgemont. And that ended up running for five years. And that kind of spiraled into other acting work. And then I always wrote on the side. I always wanted to write more. But um, I think, I, I think I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in, in Canada that are still working and have a, the same sort of feeling. It's a, um, it's a great business there, but... Um, but it's a host business in a lot of ways. And so people are coming from the States or other places to Canada to film. So to work in the business, you feel so fortunate as we all are, obviously. But the idea of like, well, I'm also going to be a writer. It's like, it felt like, who are you to like be a hybrid? Like that felt, you know, a hyphenate. I don't know, that felt like too much. So I focused really on acting, which I love. And then when I started to, I had a TV series I was doing called The 4400 that brought me, to uh, LA a bunch more and I, all the people I met were kind of had their hands in all the different cookie jars and I was like not only can you do this it's being encouraged and you can be much more involved in the creative process so that led to writing more and um, my mentor who's still my mentor and now producing partner Iris Stephen Bear that was like a second moment because I was just like I gotta ask you about your mentor because I read about that online uh, and okay, yeah. I, you gotta tell us a bit about that it's, you know, it's I when I've done, you know, talks and, and workshops and stuff, it's what I always talk about is, you know, I've changed it a little bit, but I, I still, it's the same, find, find a mentor. Now it's sort of how you go about doing that and what a goal should be <laughs> yeah, for a mentor. It's the right way to go about that. Right. Well, and that's, yeah, that's what I'm, I was very, very fortunate. You know, I knew Ira, Ira hired me a bunch of times as an actor. And then um, when I like told him my, my big secret that I was also a writer, um, he took me under his wing. Um, but, you know, it was really how I approached him. I said, I, I want to learn from you. He's been doing it as long as I've been alive. He's incredible. And I said, I'll get coffee. I just want to be a sponge. Like, let me. And, and I got a lot of coffee. I did for, for a while. <laughs> um, but I learned. And, and he loves to teach. He's really an old school mentor in that way. Uh, it is. It is. And, it's, and it's, it's rare, unfortunately. I think there's a lot of people out there that want to help. It's a great community. But, but I think Ira loves mentoring as much as he loves writing, which is, that's rare. It is. And, and being able to really convey that. Um, I was mentored by Gary Shandling. And oh, it's, wow. it's really true that like someone who cares, who cares and who conveys, like can change your fabric you know, he changed the way I see the world. He changed the way I think about my craft and comedy and writing and everything. And I just, I spent a year with him, working with him and uh, in his breathing his air. And it, mm. you know, it totally changed my life. So having that mentorship relationship, I, I just couldn't agree more. It's everything. It's huge. It's huge. And you know what how I touched it, on? How did it change you? Like, what did you learn? 
I mean, I mean, everything in, in terms of what you said, in terms of how to handle yourself, in terms of how to make your way through the business. Um, you know, I was a very strong writer and producer and a personality. And I learned, you know, what is when you fight for something, you know, when it's worth, you know, when it's up on the screen, when you're fighting for the ultimate, for the art, for the vision, you know, mm-hmm. when, when to not get, you know, wrap. I mean, now I'm kind of talking about on the producing side, but when not to get wrapped up in things, when these are not the fights to pursue, you know, where to put your energy. I think I learned from him. He's been really good about managing that, but then, you know, down to craft, down to, you know, how, how to craft a script and a screenplay on the page. Um, you know, very, very hands-on from, from the get-go as I was getting coffee. I was also, you know, over his shoulder as he was writing or he was over my shoulder as I was writing and um, taking notes and things like that. And really Were you like nervous to... the first time you showed him your work? Oh, yeah, yeah. Also because I I, I can't spell. I'm, I'm terrible. I rely on autocorrect so oh, much. That's my son. So... Oh, he'll be so encouraged to hear this. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I was... So I remember times where he'd be over my shoulder and I'd be typing a word and he'd just go not even close, man, not even close. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, definitely nervous, but you know, but also, again, I was aware of the fact that I had a real opportunity to be a sponge and to really learn from him. Um, So, uh, so I soaked it all up. I mean, that's beautiful. And and I feel like for mentors who want to give back, who really care to give back, having a sponge is exactly what they want too. They're like, I want to transfuse everything that I've learned into someone who's willing to absorb it and learn from me and be humble enough to devote themselves to improving their craft. Or as I'm so big about talking about learning the business side, Mm -hmm. which it sounds like you really got to learn too. And you don't get to learn that in school. You got to have that hands-on. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, I mean, on the, on the TV side, which on the TV writing side, you know, as the business is shifting, we have shorter orders with streaming. I think writers are not learning the business side as much. It used to be a a natural evolution, which it still is. Our great union says, you know, as you move up, you get to, you know, now you're a producer, now you get to be on set, now you get to be in post. Um, you're You're producing your episodes. Right, right. In theory, yeah, yeah but but that's theory. happening less and less because is I that think true? I um, it is. Yeah, with shorter orders, they're having you know smaller writing staffs, um, or they'll have you know split writing staffs where you've got you know your showrunner and your number two, and then and then you know smaller quote unquote baby writers. Although I hate that expression, um, yeah. but you know junior writers, um, and so those writers and and things aren't shooting in LA as much anymore. So if the writers' rooms are here, they say, well, I don't want to spend the money to send a writer to set except if it's, you know, the executive producer. So people aren't getting that hands-on experience. Um, and that's actually what, you know, when I started writing in TV, that's what led me to producing. Honestly, I wanted to get that experience. Um, and I found opportunities in some short films and then web series where I could learn the producing side so that I could then bring that, you know, to the TV side as I worked up the ladder. That's so cool. Are you mentoring now? You must be. Um, you know, a little bit. Yeah, I am. I haven't, I wouldn't say I have like the, the relation. I mean, I'm still being mentored. I still work with Ira and, you know, and, um, I, I, you know, I haven't learned everything there is to learn. Um, but yeah, I I have found some writers that I, you know, regularly weigh in on their scripts and, um, and I've found some producers that I'm helping, you know, navigate the indie scene as well. So, um, so yeah, yeah, a little bit and it feels, yeah, it feels good. That's incredibly cool. So I'm excited to talk to you about Killing Eleanor, but I want to jump into Outlander World for a second, just to sure. find out, because here you are, you're writing this show, 
is like, it's basically made stars what they are and define them to themselves. And it's this really cool piece of IP from Diana Gabaldon, best-selling novel from the nineties and absolutely powerful protagonist in the character of Claire. We have this really brilliant woman on screen written by a brilliant woman who has two PhDs. So how'd you Diana get into amazing. She's amazing. Like, how did you get into Outlander world? And tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, that was, again, that was all Ira. I was working for Ira. Um, he had a few things in development. He was working on a feature. And then um, Ira and Ron Moore, who's a showrunner. Yes. Um, yeah, he wrote um, the pilot too. I was a Brazilian yeah. pilot. I've studied it. It's an incredible, incredible pilot. Yeah, I was so fortunate I got to see that come together. I mean, through posts, through all the iterations, all the different cuts. Um, yeah, that was a, that was an incredible learning experience. Um, so Ron and Ira had worked together um, on different iterations of Star Trek, particularly Deep Space Nine. That was Ira's mm-hmm. baby. He ran that for seven seasons. Um, and I think when Ron was putting that show together, um, even before they got the official green light, he, he reached out to Ira, um, and so Ira was instrumental, said, yeah, I'd you know, love to do this. And I want Richard to be a part of this. Um, and so brought me into that. And, uh, and again, there was, there was note taking, there was coffee getting all of that. And I worked my way up and, <laughs> and then I got to write an episode in the second season, which I was really proud of. Oh, that's fantastic. You got to tell us about your episode. It's the one where they went to France, right? And they're in that season. And season two, they're in France. Season two, they're in France. Yeah, yeah. So I got to, it was amazing how it worked out. Um, When I got assigned an episode, you know, you don't know exactly what it's going to be. Is that, you know, the season's thing broken out. And then I ended up getting to write the return of Black Jack Randall at Versailles, which was huge. I mean, it was huge. Uh, I felt the weight of that as I was writing it. but also, I mean, amazing to write, you know, Tobias Menzies, who now we've seen in The Crown, and I just he just won the Emmy, right? Yeah. Um, incredible. So to write for him, um, you know, Katrina Balfe, and Sam Hewitt, I mean, just, you know, a, a writer's dream to write for those kind of actors and to play in Diana's world. I and mean, those characters are so incredible. Um, and then to see those dailies come in, too, with, you know, just sets and wardrobe and Versailles, it was all very luxurious. And sumptuous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Then, yeah. You're, as an actor who's now writing then for actors, do you feel that you have that advantage of your training and experience coming into the fore for you? I, I do. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, you know, I when I first, first made that transition, and even as I was starting to write on Outlander, to work on Outlander, I, I won't say I hid my acting background because it's out there. You can Google it. It's there. Um, no one can hide anymore, right? Um, <laughs> but I felt like, A, that I needed to make the, the, the clean switch, but also it felt like, well, you know, would would it feel like I was trying to protect actors and not look at the whole process. I, I don't know. It was my my own sort of, I had to work through that. And then what I really came to, to answer your question, is that I think I, I have an advantage that I bring. I, I, you know, I was fortunate to work as an actor for almost 20 years. Um, and I bring that to the characters. So I'm used to breaking it down from going back to theater school days. How do we break a script down? So to reverse engineer that as a writer, um, I, I think I bring that that headspace, um, and and hopefully I'm writing dialogue that actors want to take and run with, you know. So I really had to um, kind of get out of my own way in terms of looking at that as um, something separate and looking at that as an advantage. 
So interesting. My last interview actually last week was with director Joel Zwick. Mm. And Joel is an actor's director. So we were talking a lot about the process of seeing something brought to life and um, the mistake of thinking as a writer that your words are set in stone. It's like as the as the actors bring it to life, it is maybe going to go a different direction than what you anticipated. Do you allow for like the happy accident in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's both film and television. That's the amazing thing. And not, you know, not just the actors, um, but all of the amazing artists that come together to make these worlds, to make this exist. Um, and, and yes, I believe it all has to be on the page and it starts with the page. I firmly believe that. Um, but then I think, you know, especially in TV, the best showrunners hire the best artists in every department and then just get out of their way let, let these talents time. do what they do um i remember and this is before i wrote my episode i i got to go to scotland for outlander um and again that was ira was instrumental in that I, I lived there for three months and shadowed him on set and got to learn and there was a scene that i helped write in an earlier script and um i remember writing it you know in an office in pasadena where we were working on it um and then you're there and we're driving up in the morning and we're outside of glasgow and you know there's there's fog and we're driving freezing up to castle locations. <laughs> yes yeah okay, uh, all of that yeah we shot no it's true we shot in december and i was like i'll be fine i'm canadian it's a different kind of cold there it's like to your bones um yeah there's a funny story about that but yeah i remember driving up to to the location and you look around and you're like, wow, this is like what was on the page, but also so much better because everyone collaborated and then you just get to see the magic come together. So, so yeah, absolutely. There's got to be room for, for improvisation from every department, like take it a run. And that's the, that's the brilliance of hiring people who are great at their jobs. It's so important. I mean, is that I, my wife is smarter than me. I've married someone who's better than me. I want to work with people who are better than me. Like that's, that's the secret, right? They make you look good. 100%. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I really am excited to talk about Killing Eleanor, this brilliant, brilliant film. And I want to hear all about how you got involved with it. But I got to read for everybody listening, the fascinating logline of this story, because it's unlike anything I've ever encountered, a terminally ill old lady who wants to on her own terms, uh, convinces a self-destructive addict to help kill her in exchange for clean urine. This is the movie <laughs> killing, killing Eleanor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the, that's... The, and the actresses in this, Annika Marks and Jenny O'Hara, Annika wrote and starred in it. And then you've got Jenny O'Hara, who plays Eleanor. Yeah, yeah, the great Jenny O'Hara. Jenny's one of those, those actors who's just... I mean, her career is incredible. I, I actually just caught up with her the other day. We had a lovely catch up. She's she's amazing. And she's just one of those, um, you know, consummate working uh, character actresses um, who's always there. You see her and you go, oh, right, 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 right. The mom and that. And no, oh, yeah, right, right. And she's just always working. But, you know, she hasn't been as front and center as she deserves to be i think and that was a big part of this film i mean annika and her did a play together years back before i was ever involved in the project um and annika wrote this for her love jenny they had oh such a great God. working experience 
Um, I think Jenny really mentored her as well on the acting side. They really bonded and she wrote this for her, um, to, you know, to put her front and center and let her shine. And she does. I mean, she's just so incredible. So incredible. Yeah, the, movie, the movie was just phenomenal. I had seen Thank one you. of your tweets come through and then I was like, what is this movie? You know, starring this woman <laughs> who's 80 and you never see women over 40 on screen, much less 80. And I was like, I'm stopping everything I'm doing right now. It was it's on Amazon, right? Is where people can Yeah, it's ever it's it's Amazon, Amazon it's iTunes, it's Voodoo, it's YouTube rental, it's all of that. Yeah, it's out there so, for all the you know, and, and then watching it, I was just completely transfixed. The filmmaking, the story, and the whole concept, which your director brought to life so beautifully of death with dignity and how important mm. this is in our society. Yeah, yeah, that's what really brought me to it. I I had done Lucky, which we mentioned, um, which was the sadly ended up being Harry Dean Stanton's final film. But I was so fortunate to to help bring that project to life. Um, and we had a great run with that, um, a successful theatrical release. And I wasn't really looking to do another another smaller film uh, immediately. But then um, talk about mentoring. Um, Anne Kenny, who's a writer that I worked with on Outlander, amazing writer producer. Um, she is friends with Rich Newey, who directed Killing Eleanor, um, yeah. is married to Annika Marks, a, a great husband-wife team. And um, they were looking to put the film together, and they spoke to Anne, and they said, you know, we really need to bring a producer onto this. We would love to talk with someone. She said, well, you know, you should talk to my friend Richard. So it was just going to be, you know, us chatting over the phone, and then maybe we talked about having coffee, and just if I could kind of point them in the right direction, help with financing, give them any advice that I could after, yeah. after Lucky's run, I was happy to do it. And so we had that, they're, you know, good people. So we hit it off. And then I said, well, you know, let me read the script and I can see, you know, where I can point you in the right direction. And then once I read the script, I was just like, I'll point you in the right direction. And I want to like help with pointing you in the right directions. I want to, I want to be involved. Um, I just, again, you know, the subject matter, which is, you know, end of life, dying with dignity, and also um, addiction. I think both of those yeah. have touched everyone in some capacity. And um, and I just thought her approach in the script um, and Rich's vision for the film was, you know, a way of having really important conversations of hopefully having a film, you know, you always want people to, I mean, when we could do that, hopefully we will be able to again, but you go to see a movie in theaters and then you go and have a drink or coffee or whatever afterwards and you want to talk and it, it brings up important conversations um, especially around these subjects um, and doing it in a way that I thought you know had a lot of a lot of light um, I mean that's why that that log line that's why I love it because you know so clean urine I mean it speaks to the comedy <laughs> in the film too it's dark but I think that's important you know to have these conversations uh, and around these subjects that are not easy subjects um you know you got to bring some some light and, and i think that they crafted that really well so that really brought me to the table oh this is i mean it's beautiful and it's really hard to do well i think we all nobody really loves an agenda driven script like that's mm -hmm. not what we're in this business for we we love entertainment and at the same time you, we mentioned Icarus earlier, like there are movies that change the world, that change our lives. There are shows that impact us that after seeing them, we're never the same again. You know, thinking of shows like Pose, for instance. And right. um, it's really cool that this movie 
tackles these big issues, but like, just like sprinkling a little spinach in the popcorn. This is a really entertaining movie. It's so fantastically acted. The performances are just phenomenal. And these characters are so alive. There were just so many moments where I was thinking like, I I feel like I know them, like they're friends of mine. Like I've Mm -hmm. known people in my life who were these characters. And then also as you're watching Jenny O'Hara bring Eleanor to life, like I was just thinking, you know, this is She's so relatable. And my, you know, my grandparents passed away recently. And like, wait, how many movies are there that really show anyone, uh, especially women, even over the age of 40? And yet our lives are so enriched by our grandparent figures, by our elders, by those who are, you know, in some way communicating their life experience to us. A hundred percent. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that. It's um you know, I, I I think that there's a real um, opportunity being missed by this hard and fast rule of over a certain age, and we're not going to be interested in their stories. We're not going to be invested in their stories, and yet those are the people who are shaping our lives off screen. I mean, those you know, from our grandparents to our older mentors, or you know, whoever it is. So I just think, you know, I feel fortunate to have done that with Lucky. I mean, Harry was 89 when we shot that film. Um, you know, Jenny, I say an 80-year-old character, she's not quite 80 yet. I want to say that for Jenny. She's not, um, but but close. And, and you know, and uh, we're just told that those aren't the stories that audiences want to see. And and I think that's garbage. I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm a Golden Girls fan, too. And, like, you see the, the longevity, yeah. right? The longevity of shows like that where, you know, if they're written well and the characters feel alive to us, like, we want to go on those journeys. And this is a road trip movie. It is a journey movie. Yeah. And I, you know, I love that the way it pulls you along as we get to know these characters and their stakes and what they're up against and what they care about. And you're wondering what are their character arcs going to be? And I feel like it kept me on the edge of my seat, just not knowing, you know, what's going to happen for them and what, you know, ultimately, like, as we see, I'm not going to give anything away, but in the mm. end, you know, that there's, there's a real change for one. Oh, well, I guess there's big changes for both characters. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I don't know. I just found it really entertaining and fascinating. And then also, and I, I don't want to gloss over this because you, you've got strong female representation amongst the actresses, but then you've also got them behind the scenes as well. And 50% of the producers and 60% of the department heads were female, including your DP, which yeah. is like, wow, I just love that. I have to give a yeah. shout out, Jessica Young, because I mean, as we've heard more and more, there just, there just aren't many female DPs at all. And Jessica Young is such a rock star. And she went on after us. She shot uh, Two Distant Strangers, which won the Academy Award for Best Live Action Feet, Live Action Short, pardon me. Um, so she's just incredible, incredible talent. And yeah, Jen Wilkinson was our first AD. Um, yeah, we had an amazing group of women. And um, I was just, you know, one of the dumb guys that got to come along and help. <laughs> um, I'm so, so, so glad that I could. Uh, it's cool. Well, you know, the future is female. Or so I hear. Uh, it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> no arguments here. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, and I also loved the music. And I, I know it says here that 100% of the vocalists on all 16 songs used of the in the film are from female artists. Yeah. Tell me yeah, about the decision was... making that went into that, because the music was really notable and fantastic in this movie. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. That that was all. That was Rich and Annika, our director, and you know, our our well, Annika produced, wrote, and starred in it. 
Um, and, you know, the idea of how you use music in a film is always, whether it's source, whether it's score, and, you know, we had a little bit of, of everything, but the idea that like, that's going to carry you through, that is the, um, the beating heart of the film. Um, and this is a story about two women. And so that just felt, I think from day one, that just felt right. Um, and then it was, you know, what are those instruments? What are those vocals? Um, you know, but I, I, I I don't think we ever had any conversation where it wasn't um, female-driven vocals and music. Um, again, it just it felt like it needed to be. It was the beating heart of the film. It's really cool. Where was it shot? We shot in and around Chicago. And that's, ah. that's yeah, originally the film was set in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so uh, I lived and worked in Vancouver for a long time. We just sort of talked about maybe, you know, where, you know, Seattle, Portland, both have a good film community. Um, and then we ended up partnering up um, with Angie Gaffney, who's my producing partner on this, who's a Chicago-based producer who Annika had worked with before. And she brought us to Chicago Media Angels, who are investors, and they are truly angels. They're incredible, an incredible group that bring together businesses in Chicago to invest in film and really to bring film to Chicago. So once we started to have those conversations um, and then just creatively, it felt like, wow, we can really see this being set there. Um, and the idea of them trying to get to Canada, um, again, without giving anything away, yes. um, but that being the road trip element just felt felt right. So Hanukkah, you know, got into that script and did a nice rewrite and, um, and Chicago Media Angels really supported us through this and are now as the film's coming out, they've been, they've been incredible. So yeah, we shot all, mostly the suburbs of Chicago. And then a bit of that road trip was actually on its way all the way up um, to the Upper Peninsula. Did you guys shoot during COVID? No, no, we, uh, we shot before um, and we, I think just the telltale end of our post, I think we locked the film officially, you know, just as COVID, as COVID broke. Um, but no, we were, we were fortunate that was in a, a pre-COVID world. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I, I want to hear more about really bringing the vision to life on screen. What surprised you about seeing the script come all the way through to its full uh, fledged movie hood? <laughs> Um, what surprised me, you know, again, that's one of the things it was so you talk about on the page, it was really all there, I think. Um, and again, that the, the script just always made me laugh too, which I think mm -hmm. that that was, you know, how can we execute this in a way where that humor um, and those, like you said, relatable characters really come through. So I think that that was always a challenge. Um, but again, I think, you know, Rich being married to Annika has lived with that script as long as she has. And I think knew that in and out. And so, and, and Rich started as an editor. So I think he had the film in his head as we were shooting it. Makes a lot uh, of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, which was huge when you're doing an 18 day shoot with not a lot of money. That was 18 days. 18 days. Yeah. Wow. I think actually maybe was it 17 days of our main unit and then I think a day and a half of second unit to get some of the road trip stuff in there shooting like four um, or five pages a day on that oh stuff. yeah more yeah more yeah. than that even yeah more than that um which we I mean we did the same thing on lucky and that was in LA so that had its own challenges um but you know that was another great thing about shooting in Chicago is that it was it's you know there's a film business there it's great Dick Wolf has really built up the TV business there but the indie film business, uh, I think people have a real hunger for it. Um, so people were just super supportive. We had this amazing young crew who just like, 
had endless amounts of energy and just wanted to work. And people opened up their homes, literally like, yeah, you want to film here? Sure. Absolutely. Just that great, you know, Midwest spirit. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we would have been able to make this film with this, this number of locations, this number of characters uh, at this budget um, anywhere else. I, I really, I really don't. Uh, tax oh, incentives no. were, were incredible uh, in Illinois. So there's um, tax incentives yeah. in Illinois, everybody listening. There are, there <laughs> are. And, and, and those increase as you get outside of Chicago so that you can be bringing in people who don't get those opportunities if you're hiring crew outside. So it worked out uh, creatively and it worked out financially. So yeah, go to Chicago. That, that's so cool. See, I didn't know any of that. And I, I love hearing that. I'm newly producing myself um, with my mm. producing partner, Scott Gardenauer. And yeah, I'm learning about it and I am geeking out on it. And I just, I love it. I actually live here in, um, well, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, but now I'm living in North County, San Diego. I was a development exec for a long time in Venice. And now I'm here in Encinitas and I'm a surfer. And I'm going, well, how come we're how come we're not filming more than just Anchorman, which was a fantastic movie and several sure. movies here in San Diego. But now they're working on creating a film commission and a film office and stuff. And we're just right across the border from Baja Studios as well, which is yeah. where, you know, Titanic was shot and stuff. And there's more productions that could come south. So I'm, I'm hoping that our city and our county gets more motivated. I think, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it will. I hope it will. I think, you know, people need to get outside of the hubs. Um, I think you'll find a more welcoming, like I said about Chicago, but I found right. the same thing shooting outside of LA, um, you know, just on yeah, the outskirts of the Yeah, because in LA, the they're like, you need to pay us a fortune to use our location or you're, you know, anyone who's Korea style going in, like you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, yeah, not, we don't all have this, you know, TV studio money, you know, to make these independent films. So you got to get a little creative. So yeah, absolutely. I think the smaller outside of the larger hubs, I think is really where it's at. Richard, do you feel like Killing Eleanor gives us hope for the future of indie film? I, 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 think it absolutely does. Because Lucky was I, an indie, indie film too, right? Yeah, Lucky was an indie film. And, you know, it was, you know, obviously Killing Eleanor was coming out in the COVID world. Lucky was, you know, had its theatrical run before that. So different okay. trajectories for both of the films. But yeah, I'd say both of them have, I don't know if I've ever lost uh, hope for independent film, but I think, you know, it's a, it's a good question in that, you know, what, what does the future hold for independent film? Um, and I think there's so many more avenues. There's so many more um, opportunities for independent film. And I think, you know, we talk about the golden age of TV. That really just speaks to audiences being, you know, really, really smart. And people crave good stories. And I think in the independent space, people are encouraged to take those risks. Mm. Not to say that, you know, smart stories can't be told with a larger budget. I'm not saying that at all, but I think that you're still finding it, you know, in the indie space. Um, people are thinking outside the box more. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I think um, I have a lot of hope. I love that. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. Well, you know, a lot of my audience are like up and comers in the industry. They're writers, they're directors, they're above the line creator creatives. And I'm wondering like, what could you share about what mistakes to avoid? You've seen a lot in your career, and I, I would love to hear your mind on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially as you're up and coming, I mean, maybe I'll go back to the mentoring thing, which I kind of touched on, but 
you know, the idea of how to approach a mentor, I've been saying, you know, I was so fortunate, am so fortunate to have a mentor, but uh, which is, is invaluable. But I think how people approach that, there is a, hey, you've done a lot of work. Can you get me a job? Mm-hmm. And that, and that's not mentoring. Um, and so um, I think the idea of, hey, let me get coffee, let me be a sponge, you know, all of that, um, I think, again, speaks to a work ethic, but it also, that is what mentoring should be, you know, take, find someone who's, who's had a successful run, who's in it, who you can learn from and, and try to be a fly on the wall. Um, so I think, you know, I've heard a lot of, well, it's really, really hard to get mentors. You know, people don't want to mentor. No, people don't want to get you a job, uh, when they're still looking to keep a job for themselves or, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's, um, and that gets a little tricky, but I think people absolutely want to take someone under their wing who has a strong work ethic and show them what they've learned. So I think it's how, especially for people starting out, I think how you approach, uh, mentoring and just the business as a whole, I think, let me learn, I think is a good, a good way to, to dive in. I love that. Uh, you know, when I was with Gary Shandling and I asked him how he got into comedy, he said, you know, I always knew I was funny. I could make people laugh in class, you know, and then ultimately started experimenting with stand-up. and he stuck with it because he said, this is where I feel like I'm going to learn the most about myself. And he was interested mm. in that and he would get on stage and learn about himself and that kept him going at it. And I, I feel like that's the most beautiful side of this business, which is like, we can learn so much about ourselves as we're delving into our own creativity, whether we're part, you know, we're in front of the camera and we're bringing it to life in that way, or whether we're creating it on the page or you're contributing to something with your own creativity uh, that, that can be really really life-changing if you're learning if you're coming from that standpoint of learning rather than the whole like what's in it for me and how can I get what I want which is always which is always like you know who wants to talk to somebody with that frame of mind like no one's interested in that it's just a it's 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 also just such a short-term goal which which I understand we all have bills to pay and we all want what's that next opportunity I, I completely understand it it's such a human uh need but it's a short-term focus, and this is a long-term game, or right. should be, um, this crazy business. So, you know, you got to be looking five, ten years ahead. And to get that knowledge from somebody, that's going to, you know, serve you much better than one job in the immediate, or really will. And I think the, about, the other... You go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the other piece, because you just touched on it, and I think that's a really good point, is to be open to the business as, as a whole, Um, because I think ultimately if producing is the goal, you need to, and I guess we touched on this a little bit with how, you know, I talked about Outlander and how Ron approaches things, but you know, you need to know what everyone does on a set in the office and not only, not only know it because, you know, okay, maybe you're not interested in, uh, in accounting or you don't want to be a line producer, whatever it is, that's totally fine. But if you're going to be the person hiring those people, uh, watching over those people, um, supporting those people, you should intimately understand what their job is so that, you know, you can support them. I think that is the job that's, you know, when producing is done well, you've done all the work ahead of time, and then you are supporting and putting out fires and you need to understand what those people do. So, and also, you know, maybe you'll find something within the business that you're interested in that you can also do talking about the, having your hands in a couple of different cookie jars, you know, um, 
I think I think that that's that's really important to to you know to be open as you enter the business. So, what was your approach? Like, you're on set and you're like, "What is that person doing?" You know, you seem like a lifelong learner. So, what was your approach to discovering like how what are these jobs and what are people doing as you were coming up? Yeah, that was. I mean, you know, having the opportunity to be on sets to grow up on sets as an actor, I was always the person being like, "Hey." is it cool if I like stand by the monitor and watch what the director's doing? And like, okay, now he's talking to the scripty. Okay. Um, you know, what, what do they do? And so I was just kind of a sponge as opposed to like, let me just go to my trailer go to crafty and get a snack. Um, I mean, there was lots of that too, but also like, you know, how can I spend time on set or like, is it cool if I come in tomorrow at this new location and I'm not supposed to be here? Um, but like, I know that there's a really cool crane shot or something set up and I just want to see how this gets constructed. So I was that. Um, and then as I got both with Ira and then another writer, I worked with Craig Sweeney. Um, Craig was working, uh, I think co-running elementary on CBS, Sherlock Holmes show. And I was like, can I come and shadow you in post? And so I sat in with Craig and post and watched as he gave notes, which is invaluable for a writer because that is the final version of your script right um so so yeah i think um i was just like i was uh politely annoying um <laughs> and i just asked i asked a lot you were persistent without being a pest yes exactly <laughs> which is pretty important you know which you is find, totally it's a fine important. line but you got to find that fine line and there's that other piece of like, you talked about this so quickly, but I actually want to just spotlight it because it's so important. As you mentioned, work ethic. And it's like, if you're showing up and you're showing up on time and you're starting to get, you know, you're present, people also start to know, hey, I can rely on Richard. He's here. He's reliable. Hey, Richard, could you do this or that? I mean, you feel that that is what has happened and has helped you? Yeah. 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 I think I've always said, I mean, I, I wasn't the most talented actor. I wasn't, I'm not the most talented writer. I mean, I don't think anyone can make that claim that they are the single best, but I believe that I work harder than, than almost anyone else. Um, you know, it's just what I bring to the table. Like you said, you, if you're the first person in, in the morning, you're the last person to leave speaks to a work ethic. Also, again, you just get to soak all that up. Um, you know, of course, finding that fine line as we're hearing with IATSE now of, of the live work balance and you got to protect yourself and all of that. But I think, you know, um, again, it's all looking at the bigger picture. What can I, what can I learn? Um, yeah, I think that's huge. It can be really hard. I mean, I'm a total workaholic and like finding balance in this business, it's like really tough. You could just work 24 <laughs> seven. You, you absolutely can. I mean, I'm just finishing up on this show that I've been working on, on Beacon 23 for the last year. And it's, it was 24 uh, seven. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you, and they're like, where is he? Where is she? Yeah. And, and I'm right in the other room because we're all working from home now. So like, that's even, I'm not, it's not even like, well, dad's stuck in traffic commuting. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So it is tricky in this business. And I, I don't even know if I have advice on that because I don't think I found it well myself in terms well, of how to like find a, that line. Do you have a fitness routine or anything that helps keep you sane? Um, a little bit I do. Um, and a bit of a meditation routine that I need to get back to more. Uh, I was better at, I think I'm better when I'm busier. I'm better at finding that just sort of like inherently I go, okay, I'm about to get to 14 hours. I need to like listen to a quick meditation or I also 
and it's sort of work adjacent, but like, I, I love watching films and yeah. I think, you know, it, if you're writing something and you can like set up, you know, a playlist of films to watch that are, uh, within the tone, within the genre so that you're resting your brain, but you are living in the uh, feeling of the piece you're writing. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's fully a rest, but like a change is good as a rest. Isn't that, isn't that a saying? I mean, I think it's a state <laughs> change, right? You know, if yeah. you're you yeah. relax a little bit, I am terrible at doing nothing. I'm just terrible at it. Mm-hmm. So actually being able to rest and say, I'm going to put on a show and you can tell your brain, Hey, I'm going to study this show. <laughs> you can like actually rest and not be in the chair. It's yeah. that's really great. Yeah. yeah. I, also I, going for, going for walks. I mean, even like middle of the day, just, you know, okay, I'm hitting a wall. I mean, this is more on the writing side, but you know, okay, gotta just switch it up, get some air, you know, yeah, absolutely. get yeah. out of it. I'm a surfer. And so I feel like it, it has forced me to leave my technology in the car on the beach. Yeah. You actually can't bring your technology offshore with you. And like, I'm like, I, for the next two hours, I'm just getting wave time and you see the, the, the moon set and the dolphins go by. And like, I think it was my sanity during the entire pandemic to just be with mother nature when the world was quieter and be reminded of like, yeah, there's more to life than just working, which I can get really caught up in. It's It's the beauty of the commitment though, too. I mean, it's, you have to be obsessed to be in this business. You just have to be because there's somebody coming up right behind you who's twice as obsessed as you are, who'll overtake you. So I feel Mm -hmm. like there's that sense of, you know, loving what you're doing into life, you know, and and being so obsessed with it, committed to it, in love with it, that you're really, you know, you're authoring it, right? You're bringing it to life. So you are hundred percent. Yeah. But find that balance too, you know, so that you can, uh, you can keep on jogging as opposed to just sprinting and then, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I joke. I have fifth gear and coma. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I relate to that. <laughs> Trying to find third. And I'm like, you know, it's, I got like, it sounds like you have a puppy too. How old's your dog? Yeah. Uh, she's a year now. So she's a true COVID puppy. Oh, we yeah. Have dogs that are like about the same age. What kind of dog do you have? She's an Australian shepherd. Oh, you got an Australian Shepherd? Oh, I was going to pet having had an Australian Shepherd, and I was right about that. I should have. Oh, just... really? Yeah, we had we had an Aussie before her um, who passed uh, just over a year ago, um, uh, and he lived to be almost sixteen. And he had Australian Shepherd energy to his last day. He was amazing. Yeah, yeah. This puppy's insane, though. She's <laughs> she's well. She's a work in progress as we all are, but, um, all are. yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's, uh, but yeah, she's very, she's very cute. I, what I kind of dog him. do you have? I, you know, we joke, he is a Roddy Cocker Wawa. He is a, well, I'm trying to picture that. A Roddy Cocker Wawa. Oh, wait, Cosmo, you want to get on screen? <laughs> it's right here. <laughs> he looks exactly like what he is. I adopted a short haired puppy, um, from Foster and then like a couple weeks in, as I started giving him baths, these curls started showing up. And then once we did his DNA, it was like, oh, he's not mixed with a shepherd. He's a Rottweiler Cocker Spaniel with a little bit of a Chihuahua. And I got the Chihuahua in his nose. So he's my That's running amazing. companion. And 
I, I, it's so great to just get outside. You go walk the dog. It gets you out of, you know, away from the screens and the keyboard and you get to go walk the dog and think things through what the characters are doing and, you know, gets you 100%. out of the, get gets you out of the stuck place sometimes, which is really awesome. Yeah. Getting away from those screens is important. And yeah. And dogs do force us to do that. They absolutely do. Although I don't know if it's on mic right now, but it's garbage day. It's garbage pickup. And this is our puppy's least favorite day. Like she can hear, she can sense the rumble of those garbage and recycling trucks at like six o'clock in the morning. And she hides under the kitchen table and just doesn't want to leave. So she's, she's a sensitive little being. Do you feel like the solution is going to be like getting her another dog? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, no, I don't. I don't. I I am kind of joking because you said that she's a handful. So (laughs) she is. It's so... Although, I mean, also I'm insane and I have had that thought too. If like, well, maybe a dog that's a little bit more grounded. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Although I feel like that's what people say about kids. And then that's how people end up with like six kids and then they're outnumbered and they're like, what do we do? <laughs> and we're not doing that either. So no, no, no more dogs. Right. I want to talk to you about your writing. What are you working on now? What's happening? So I, like I said, I'm just, just finishing up on Beacon 23, which is a TV series for AMC and Spectrum. Uh, we start shooting soon, so I, I don't even know if we have a release date yet, but it's been a big, I've been working on that for a year and a bit, it's big, big, it's based on Hugh Howey's novel of the same name, Beacon 23, uh, grounded sci-fi, it's basically about um, the future of faster than light travel and how the world has expanded out, and then we have these beacons that are basically lighthouses in space, and it's about two people who end up on the outer galaxy sort of stranded in this lighthouse and neither is exactly who they say they are. And it's this sort of simmering two-hander and a great, great writing challenge because you essentially have two characters in one location within a giant grounded sci-fi world. Um, So that was a big, that was a big writing challenge, but it's been, it's been great. And navigating that in the pandemic and Zoom rooms and some of these writers I've worked with for a year, I probably will never meet in person, which has been interesting. Um, Is it a limited but, series? But, what's that? Is it a limited series? No, no, it's full. No, it's it's, yeah, full series. Yeah, stream. So our first season is going to be eight episodes. Okay. Yeah, so short short order, but uh, eight one-hour episodes. Um, and yeah, like I said, Lena Headey, uh, her first series since Game of Thrones. So we're very excited for that. And um, yeah, so I just, my, my last draft of my, the last script that I did was just released to production. So that's out there. And now I've got a few things that I'm developing. Um, I've got a script. I was hired to uh, adapt another book based on the life of Charles Ponzi. Oh and, uh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. I got to live in that world, the world of Charles Ponzi for a year. And that was just before Beacon. And now... Now that's just hitting the market. So it's just out there and um, getting that set up. Um, so yeah, those are that's sort of what I've got on my plate right now. Oh, that's incredibly cool. So yeah. let me let me play in the in the realm of imagination for a minute. If if I gave you a magic wand and you could work on absolutely anything ever, like all your wishes come true, you're producing, you're writing, anything you want, what is it? Wow. I love the idea of this magic wand. Um, I <laughs> I mean, I would continue to do a version of what I'm doing now, to be completely honest. I, I think finding 
I love writing for TV. So I think I'd love to uh, show run. I mean, that's my, that's, that's the end game for sure. Or that's the target I should say. Um, so I think, you know, uh, a really cool character driven piece, like I've got to write on Outlander now I'm vegan 23, I'll, uh, you know, breaking bad, things like that. I love those, you know, crazy world, but we're going to follow those characters through that world. So running a show like that, and then being able to keep my hand on the indie space, both producing and i've got to produce a few projects that aren't my own scripts but also producing my own scripts um so yeah i think continuing to go back and forth between those two worlds really cool are you writing features too i am yeah yeah ponzi is a feature um and then uh lifeline the other script i was hired to write before ponzi is a feature um i've got another feature idea simmering so yeah yeah absolutely oh it's really cool so it's it's you're a both and guy yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yes. And, you know, I mean, I think, um, I think you have to be. And again, that was the big lesson for me of going like, I can, um, you know, branch out and I should, and, um, it feels more artistically fulfilling, you know, to kind of be able to use your brain in, in all those different ways. So, um, so yeah, I don't see myself ever just, uh, I think like you said, I, I, I can't, um, I can't be still, I can't do just one thing. So being able to go back and forth gives me you know, a few different balls to always be juggling. Well, um, help me understand a little bit more about the TV world. Cause I came from features, right? I was a development mm. exec and our, our company did uh, movies like just friends with Ryan Reynolds and right. lawyer with Nick Nolte and a bunch of others. And did just and friends did that shoot in Vancouver? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it was. I don't, yeah, I thought I remember the one that was in production. Yeah, sorry. It was Anna Ferris's breakout hit. Yeah, yeah, I remember it. So yeah. funny in that movie. And like as the dailies were coming in, we were, everyone was like, we have to give this amazing comedian a, a bigger role. So the script was being rewritten in real time as they were shooting to give oh, wow. her more to do because she's so funny. Yeah, she's fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so, it, you know, and I worked for Gary and that's really where I learned a lot about TV, but I have no aspirations to be a TV writer. Um, mm, you know, and, why is and that? that? Yeah. Why is that? Um, <laughs> I'm turning the tables. Now I'm asking. Gary, <laughs> who's interviewing him? Because Gary Shandling was like, TV will kill you. Um, <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> Although, you know, you did he did put his his big old mark on TV. <laughs> he sure did. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god! And wow. basically made HBO uh, what it is. Who knows? Seriously. Maybe the gods are listening. That's the problem. Is the gods are listening? Now that I've said that, there there'll be like some crazy thing that happens. That hundred percent. That's how it works. I know it. I know it. Uh, I don't even remember where I was going with that question. No, I inter I interrupted you with the question, there. but it was it was the. I, it was along the the craziness of the TV world, or you know what the show running and the show creating for people yes. who really don't know, you know, who are listening, who are like, I want to be a showrunner. Tell, tell us a little bit about the show running, the show creating, and you know what the difference is and what the the duties and responsibilities are, because I think some people get them confused or maybe don't necessarily know. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I mean, it's uh, show running is um, is sort of the uh, the top tier. It's where you know it's writers as they work their way up in TV and cross over to writing and producing. And so you are then, you know, it's really where you take on the producing part of it. So it's sort of combining the two sides that I've been doing. But whereas in in features, 
you know, it really is the director's world. Um, and in TV, it's, it's the writer's world. And that is as you move up to showrunner and then you're the one hiring all of the crew, you are overseeing all of the edits, you are hiring the directors, you are really, the buck stops at you, uh, essentially. And of course, you know, showrunners have bosses, they're getting notes from the studio and the network and all of that. Um, but ultimately it is the single creative voice. And so like on Beacon 23, Zach Penn is our showrunner. And as a writer, um, I'm on his staff and I need to serve his vision. Um, and I need to be able to write in his style. And you really are coming to serve the showrunner's vision. Um, and then the showrunner hopefully has writers that they trust that they can kind of run with that creative vision while they're off you know, producing, having production meetings, having tone meetings, uh, design meetings, you know, all of this stuff that's happening right now. How are these sets being built? Um, hiring your DP, what is this world going to look like? So it really is uh, the single creative force behind TV. It's really fascinating. And some showrunners are also creating. They've created the show and some yeah. aren't, right? They're running yeah. a show. Yeah. Yeah, some do both. Yeah, some see it through from the beginning. Others like this, it's based on existing IP. Right. But yeah, others sell a show. Um, I mean, it's. I think it's rare for, you know, a writer to sell a show, you know, first show or even second show and then be brought on as a sole showrunner. But sometimes they'll, you know, they'll team up with somebody with more experience. Just again, you know, a thousand questions need to be answered by a showrunner every single day. And each of those is really important. Um so I think, you know, having that experience, but, but yeah, someone who creates the world and then, and then sees it through all the way through production and through post too. That was a big thing I learned from Ron Moore, um, less so on the writing side, but Ron was very, um, uh, involved everybody on the post side. And so to sit in and to see, you know, talk about the pilot of Outlander, see rough cuts of that, what was working, what wasn't working. And, um, and then to see Ron get his hands in and work with the editor and, and fix it without reshoots, without costing the studio more money, um, to just take existing footage and go, you know what, if we just hold a little bit longer here, or we cut this at whatever it was. Um, so that's a big part of it. And that also comes, that's all, that's all the showrunner. So it really oh, is the creative. Is yeah. That's yeah. Cool. I love that part. So many writers don't, but I, I love that. Yeah. And that's a creative problem solving where you're, you are having to think like, you know, we can't go into reshoots and we can't, ex, you know, go over budget. And so how do we fix that, that problem and make it work, you know, even seamlessly, which is, that's just so cool. Yeah. It's a puzzle. And it's like, okay, um, these pieces aren't really fitting together. Now let's take it apart and like put it back together with only the existing pieces. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Um, yeah. I learned a lot on that one. Tell, tell me about a little bit like putting out fires, you know, what, what can go wrong? What have you seen be fixed and uh, as stuff goes along? I mean, I have, I think I've told this before, but I have, um, you know, one of the examples that, that really sticks in my mind was on Killing Eleanor. Again, that was, you know, it was a pretty tight budget, very tight shoot, an ambitious shoot in terms of number of locations and number of cast. Um, and we had a location, it's... Um, a gas station location, which I won't give away anything, but we've got a few of them, but there's one key one. Um, and we had that location locked. And then I heard from our location manager, not even 48 hours before we were supposed to film there, that um, the owner of the gas station didn't want to sign the location agreement. Totally fine with us filming there and all of that, you know, business side stuff. Um, but just 
small town business guy, just not comfortable with contracts, didn't want to sign it. So that's when I'm on the phone with our lawyer saying, is there any way? And it's like, no, you know, this will be a problem at the distribution stage. No. And it took us a long time to find that location. And so I knew the creative side that we talked to our director, you know, obviously wasn't happy. Neither was I, you know, we need this location. It has to be that location. We looked at other ones. So that was um, me in a rental car, not really knowing Chicago, driving around, pounding the pavement, stopping at every gas station, calling up people and finding a location that fit and would also agree to the legal side so that, you know, everyone could be covered. Um, so, I mean, that was a fire and that was, you know, again, 48 hours before. But um, I think the great thing about having very little money as we did on that film was, you know, I think, and you see this a lot in TV too, especially as budgets have grown, you can throw money at a problem. Uh Um, Okay, well, whatever, we'll just build a gas station location. Um, (laughs) You know, we didn't have that. So you had to get creative and creative was um, just getting in my car and finding a location. Um, I mean, we had that on on Lucky as well. I remember we were looking, it's a great, uh, it's one scene cameo with a Harry Dean Stanton and we wanted, um, and another guy that turns out to be an old war vet as well. And we wanted a cameo and, and then the idea of Tom Skerritt came up and that, that Harry and Tom had not been on screen together since alien. And we thought, wow, would that be amazing? And like Harry had said, this was going to be his last film. Tom still works, but you know, more or less retired. He doesn't live in LA anymore. And, um, started getting that going. His agent was really into it. He read the script. He was into it. And then it's like, oh, but, you know, he doesn't live in L.A., so you guys need to fly him in and put him up. And, and our budget was, was, it was done. We were like, oh, we, we can't. But he, like, he said yes, and this cameo would be so amazing. And um, So I was like, okay, let's put together everyone. Who, who, has, who has points? Who has hotel points? And so, great, cool. We can put him up in a hotel on points. Um, and then it was like, oh, transport, transport. I was like, you know what? I, will, I would love to throw Tom Scared into my Prius and drive him around L.A. What an honor that would be. Um, and so we did. And, and you know what? A, it solved the problem, but also I got to spend hours with Tom Skerritt in my Prius and just hearing from him and the amazing life and career he's had. So it was like putting out fires, but also like I won. I totally won in that situation. Love that story. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, putting out fires is just creative problem solving when you can't throw money at a problem. There's a beautiful side to that uh, in making things happen and making things go right. You're not sitting around complaining about what's going wrong or throwing money at it. You're going, how can I make things go right? And we only have, you know, the sand is slipping through the hourglass. How can we get there, you know, and make it make it happen? I, I love those stories. And they're some of my favorite stories, you know, for my own life, too, for sure. It's like those moments where you, you everybody pulls together as a team to make something happen. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's no other option. You have to, you know, there is, and especially as an indie producer, you're so, you feel so responsible, you should feel so responsible to your investors, um, wherever that money is coming from. And so the idea of like, this has to happen, we'll find a way to make it happen, because these people are trusting us, um, and allowing us to put this film out into the world. So we owe it to them. So we'll find another gas station, we'll drive Tom Scared around, you know, we'll get it done. Let's talk about the film investment side a little bit, because it's really interesting to me. Are they 
Um, for example, one of the models I know is like they're getting first money out plus a percentage. Like, are yep. they looking at recoup? Like, what what is what was that in their interest in the project? Yeah, I mean that's that ends up being the key question, and it's a tricky one to answer. Um, but that's not a bad thing. It's tricky because there are a, a bunch of different ways to go yes. about film financing. Right. Um, and there are different entities. Chicago Media Angels has a different business model um, than some of the entities we worked with on Lucky. Um, and there are also individual, there's um, you know just angel investors. There's right. also film funds that are set up. We had access to one on Lucky. Um, of where course, like it was tax incentives and absolutely like yeah about. and there's tax write-offs involved in selling off the tax write you know so there's there's a whole bunch of different ways about going about it and every company that you approach will structure it in different ways uh there's also and i think chicago media angels works in this way there is value in bringing in business to a city when you've got people who are invested in that business in, in that city in other businesses there's value in bringing in and then and then using those ven those vendors um, in showing people that um, you know, and obviously this is not so much for LA that's a tried test and true market, but other markets, this is a valuable place to shoot. So there's value inherent in that. So there's a bunch of different ways to structure that. But then, yeah, I mean, it's always about those investors getting their money back, usually plus twenty percent first, right. um, so that they have some you know some incentive. And I think that there is, you know, and this is going back to the other question of, uh, is there more hope for independent film? There are so many avenues to get the film out now. I mean, I talked about, you know, where you can rent us right now on Vudu, which, you know, wasn't an option, you know, not even that many years ago, um, and paid versions of, um, you know, of renting it on iTunes, renting it on Amazon, all of that stuff. So there's so many other options. And then you go to AVOD and then you go to TV rights and you go, um, you know, we, uh, after our theatrical run, Lucky was on Hulu. And then we just resold the film to HBO Max. So there are so many avenues uh, for film to get out there, but also for investors to recoup their funds. So like it was on Hulu for an, for a period of time and yeah. then you got the film back and then you go redistribute it on HBO Max. Is that how that worked? Yeah, it still is on Hulu. So we, um, I, I think our deal was seven years, um, and, but only a certain amount of that is exclusive and that's all part of the negotiations. And so you go, okay, you know, you want to keep this film playing there and give them incentive. Um, but then you want to have options, you know, once some eyes have gotten on it to take it out. And then HBO Max obviously wasn't around at that point. So now to have an opportunity to get it there. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's more avenues. Fascinating stuff. I mean, it is a really cool time that we're living in where there's like more buyers than ever before. There's more yeah. outlets than ever before. And we've got savvy audiences, you know, who are, who want to find um, meaningful film and TV that really matters for them. And my son is nine. So we're always looking for something like, well, you know, what can we watch together? Cause you know, yeah. stuff he loves, I don't necessarily love stuff. I love, he can't really watch. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I, yeah. Same thing. Yeah. My son's seven. So I, I know it well. Oh, that is so cool. I love that. Yeah, he just went as, well, he was telling everyone he was Robin Hood, but really he was Errol Flynn for Halloween because as a film guy um, and uh, my mentor Ira, who he calls Uncle Ira, um, you know, showed him the original Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. So he thinks Errol Flynn is the coolest, which I feel proud that my seven-year-old knows who Errol Flynn is. 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, we also know that that in a more adult sense is where we get the phrase in like Flynn. Yes. Yeah. We haven't talked. Yes. We're not going to talk about, about the womanizing that. and the excessive drinking. No, that that'll be for another Halloween. <laughs> Different Halloween, much, much further in the future. Yes. yes. Now this is just about Robin Hood. <laughs> That's great. I'm not even sure my son knows who Robin Hood is. He's all into the Marvel Arrow and Flash. Oh, yeah. You know. Show him the original Robin Hood. He'll, I mean, it's it holds up. It's such you a it's classic. He won't, watch, he won't watch anything, quote unquote, old. I can't even uh, watch The Wizard of Oz. He's just like a future-oriented person who's, mm. you know, what's the latest digital technology and all that kind of thing. Yeah, he's his own right. person that way. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> that's so cool well Richard I, I'm so stoked that you spent some time with me today talking about all the stuff that we love you are a fantastic human being I just love talking with you oh wow well thank you likewise this was this was great I'm so glad to hear oh, how much you appreciate the film um people need to watch it you know where it's, can uh, people see Killing Eleanor let's touch that again because I, yes. I want to make sure everyone goes out and watches this fantastic movie it was great Thank you. Yes, please do. It's it's on Amazon. You can rent it. You can purchase it. It's on iTunes. You can rent it and purchase it. It's on Vudu. It's uh, it, it's out there anywhere you're streaming. Also, go to my Twitter because I'm constantly going to be pushing it because I I'm I'm proud. This is this is a passion project for all of us. So it's out there. Should be proud. What's your Twitter handle so people can find you and follow you there? It's just my name. It's at Richard Cahan, K-A-H-A-N. I'm there. I was never a part of social media until Outlander. And then Diana, she's got such a big following and such a big, so now I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter and it's, uh, I've met some really amazing creatives through Twitter. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there often. Woohoo. I love that. Well, I hope to have you back again. Thanks for being such a great guest. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at This Is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A, and Sylvia at R Writer, that's R W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.